You may not have heard of Locum Tenems or CompHealth as the very first locums agency formed to help physicians find short-term jobs. Locum Tenems can be very beneficial in reducing the number of bureaucratic tasks required while adding flexibility to your career, even while keeping your permanent position. And with CompHealth, it's a truly personalized experience that focuses on you and your skills, specialty, and goals. You can find jobs close to home, and CompHealth will even help you find your next full-time job, too. Explore Locum Tenem's job now at CompHealth.com. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming back for another episode with the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. Uh, this is Jay, uh, one of the founders of the podcast, and I have my amazing sparring team here with me, guys. Introduce yourselves. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Soham over here, coming at you live from Indiana. Good evening, everyone. This is Jose, the med student here. Calling from see how you're going. All right. Awesome, guys. So hopefully you all been following along. We've put out uh, quite a few uh, sparring classic uh, citations, and uh, I hope you know, I hope this is not your first time tuning in because we have quite a bit out there for you now. But if it is, uh, we've been going through some of the classic uh, spine literature and, and kind of analyzing the liter- literature uh, for you guys with our show. So we have about uh, five, five different shows now, I guess, and uh, each one have a different topic. Today we're doing uh, ASD, adult uh, spinal deformity. So uh, we're going to get right into it, guys. You can go at it. Let's do it. This is a hot topic. I think even between a lot of my attendings, there's a, there's debate um, on, on what quote unquote believers in adult spinal deformity surgery and um, and so on and so forth. So definitely an interesting topic. I'm excited to talk about. It. I'm going to pass it over to Jose and he'll uh, he'll take it off. Thank you, there, Sirhan. So basically, um, just to give you a little bit of background about the, about this idea about the adult spinal deformity. Basically, as as pretty much mentioned that it's a misalignment of the spine's nose shape, curvature, and even contours. These uh, sometimes these um, conditions can occur mostly idiopathically, majority of them are, but they can, um, but we'll see that um, they can occur in many ways there. And one diagnostic criteria is shown here that it has to be greater than 10 degrees of coronal plane balance and even five centimeters, more than five centimeters from the sagittal plane balance is there. As mentioned earlier, mentioned, um, Majority of these are idiopathic. Sometimes they just develop over time there, and uh, but sometimes can can occur from other forms like degenerative generation, especially common in elderly, uh, trauma, uh, even uh, prior spinal surgeries can occur this as well. That occurs over like many de- years, decades, and so forth, and it produces this deformity. And also, it could be occurred due to secondary to to these some of these uh, other neuromuscular diseases process conditions, like for example. Uh, tuberous sclerosis, uh, neurofibromatosis. These conditions here can, can call as our association to other conditions that develops over time there, along with there. And um, these present, and your typical presentation include, can include back pains, um, some neural uh, qualifications, secondary canal stenosis, as well as also they can have some formal uh, stenosis from radi- uh, radical, radical um, um, deformed symptoms there. And normally we would think about uh, like say scoliosis or deformities, you will think of like your, your board style thing is like, say, for example, a child comes in with back pains and you do the examinations. We have them, the classic ones basically to have them um, lean forward, down, bend over as if they're touching their toes. 
and you will see their curvature. Normally you'll see like a straight line, kind of like a straight spine there as it should be. But when you see deviate angle along, and in the old days, they used to have these, um, a special meter that we used to call the um, uh, a Cobb and, uh, and rulers. These are special ones they used, they used to see, uh, they'll go along to see the, see the spine goes as a straight line. But if it doesn't go straight, you know there's a deformity there. there. And now all the time these uh, conditions can occur to children, sometimes can have an adult onset over time there. That's, that's why a lot of times that idiopathic is the most common for that reason there. And of course, um, usually X uh, chest X, usually X rays of the spine is mostly the um, is the usually the initial best for sh showing uh, both in standing and bending positions there to sh basically sh get the the measurement and the balances both coronal and sagittal balances there, which one which we will just have uh, research on and we'll explain later on. And usually these treatments, depending on what kind of angles you get, usually the car, usually a lot of times they will say it's around thirty degrees angle. And that and that angle, if, if it goes more than that, that's usually we do more of a um, intervention. But if it's less than 30, as long as there's no symptoms developed, then usually just observe them, do a construct uh, conservative uh, care for them, basically bracing, physical therapies, some pain meds, anti-inflammatory, so forth. But however, as that goes on, you may have to consider the more um, <clears throat> a more interventional, as mentioned, particularly bracing to start, hoping to get the alignment but if that continues on particularly any some concerning features like for example um affects when walking but mostly if it affects even with breathing because of the proximate location of the diaphragm this is where surgery is warranted to correct these deformities and and obviously if it go as goes time goes by especially goes um above 50 degrees that's and with worsening symptoms then you know right there surgical um intervention is is the only absolute um treatment for these modalities. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, in variation to, you know, idiopathic scoliosis, or at least the, you know, the adolescent idiopathic scoliosis that we see in the clinic, um, in that, you know, Adam forward, the, the forward bend test that you were referring to, um, with, with adult spinal deformity, we, you know, we often see it in the, you know, lumbar spine, as opposed to the, the thoracic spine that we see in teenagers. Um, and, and it's usually from, you know, some element of degeneration. So, you know, the generation of the facets or that, you know, the disc itself, um, the facet capsules and, you know, all the ligamentous structures and, and um, you know, that can lead to collapse in, in these various deformities, uh, which can then lead to, you know, worsening neurologic status, um, you know, so that's kind of a big deal, but it is important, like you mentioned, that, um, you know, the most common presentation for this is back pain, which is, um, you know, I think important. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it off and talk about some of these radiographic parameters um, that, you know, we see on, on orthobullets and, and the OID questions. Um, so this is a paper uh, titled Radiographic Spinal Parameters and Disability in the Setting of Adult Spinal Deformity. Um, they called this a prospective multicenter analysis, basically a prospective cohort study um, by Schwab et al. is published in 2013 in Spine, um, primarily out of the, the hospital joint disease um, at NYU. So go ahead and give you a little bit of background. At the time of this study, um, you know, these authors pointed out that, you, you know, the adult spinal deformity diagnosis and a, a lot of the workup was done based on coronal um, imbalance in, in the Cobb angle that Jose mentioned. Um, and so, you know, they were defining a lot of things based on, on just a, a PA x-ray. Um, there had been some, some research in, you know, around the early 2000s about the importance of sagittal parameters, um, you know, primarily the SVA, the sagittal vertebral angle. And, um, or sorry, said which you were access and uh, 
you know, they were interested in, in knowing how these correlated with different health related quality of life measures, um, as you know, there had been some retrospective data on pelvic retroversion in the SVA. So what these authors wanted to look at was to establish the relevance of certain radiographic parameters and correlate them to um, different disability measures, basically different health related quality of life scores um, to predict if they could look at parameters and know which ones would be the most disabling. Um, and they wanted to focus specifically on spinopelvic parameters. So um, basically the alignment between your, your lumbar spine and your, uh, your pelvis or your sacrum. So like I said, it was a prospective study with multiple centers involved. Um, and all these patients had adult spinal deformity um, and they were basically chosen to either be treated operatively or non-operatively based on the surgeon's discretion. Um, so the inclusion criteria were that they were, you know, skeletal mature patients, and then they met the diagnostic criteria for uh, adult spinal deformity. Um, and then, like I mentioned, the surgeons decided, uh, you know, without knowledge of the, the study results um, or even preliminary results, how they would treat their patients, um, you know, just based on, on their practice. Uh, and so all these patients had full-length spine films. They've completed several questionnaires, including the OSTRI Disability Index, uh, the Scoliosis, the SS22, which I think is the Scoliosis Research Society, and then the SF36. Um, and then they took several different parameters based on their AP and um, lateral x-rays, uh, which were calculated with a validated software system. So it was very homogenous and very well protocolized um, in terms of what they were measuring. So in terms of their results, I think that it's important to talk about the demographics of the patients. Um, so between their study period, between 2008 and 2010, they had uh, about 500 patients with adult spinal deformity, a large majority of which were females um, that were enrolled at various sites. And um, between what the surgeons decided, about 178 were treated operatively, 315 were non-operatively. Um, so it's important to know just at baseline, before anything was done, before any intervention, all of the operative group patients had a higher baseline disability on every single health-related quality of life measure. So the patients who ended up getting surgery were, the way I think about it is, you know, they were more miserable to begin with. Um, and so they did, a they did several different analysis, but the correlation analysis demonstrated what they found were the most clinically relevant and strongest correlated radiographic parameters. And what they determined that to be was your pelvic tilt, your SVA, and your pelvic incidence minus lumbar lordosis or your pel uh, pelvic incidence lumbar lordosis mismatch. And that was in the entire study population. So between both operative and non-operative groups. So then they compared between operative and non-operative groups, and they found that the operative group had greater spinopelvic malalignment among all three of these parameters that the correlation al analysis revealed. Um, and then they went back and they did a, a linear regression to predict ODI scores that indicated severe disability. So a score greater than 40 indicates severe disability. And they put that in their re regression model and basically back calculated what pelvic tilt, SVA, and PILL you would have to have to, to be quote unquote severely disabled. And they determined these values to be 22 for the pelvic tilt, 47 millimeters for your SVA, and then a PILL mismatch of 11 degrees. So they, they found that patients above these thresholds, so greater than these predictive values, were more likely, um, sorry, patients below these thresholds were more likely to undergo conservative care. Um, and then, you know, the P, they found that the PILL mismatch was the most correlating uh, to having pelvic retroversion, global malalignment, and severe disability. So that, that was their um, kind of a big conclusion. So uh, like I said, so they identified the three key radiographic parameters that drive the disability in adult spinal deformity patients. And, uh, and then they used their regression to establish a threshold. And, and, you know, these are values that we see pretty frequently, um, you know, on board questions and, and things like that. So, um, 
they confirmed that these radiographic parameters that correlate with poor disability are based in the sagittal plane. So that was um, one of the you know, groundbreaking things that they did. This is the first well-protocolized study um, with prospective data that showed the importance of sagittal spinal pelvic alignment. Um, and then they demonstrated that the PILL mismatch had the strongest correlation to clinical outcome scores and to the other two key parameters. So um, it was, it, you know, the PILL mismatch, basically what it shows is that you have an inadequate amount of lumbar lordosis um, and that your, you know, your lumbar spine doesn't match up with your pelvic tilt, right? Um, or sorry, pelvic incidence, um, ignore that typo there. And uh, what this does is it allows for a, an objective surgical management when you're doing adult spinal deformity surgery is, you know, you know, you can correct lumbar lordosis. It's something you can see and it gives you a goal um, and, and what that will subsequently lead to is also corrections of the pelvic tilt and SVA. So I think this is important because, you know, it was demonstrating the importance of sagittal spinal pelvic alignment and gives you a surgical goal. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. It's, uh, you know, super, it's a landmark study just because of that. Like you say, it gave us a, something to, that we can change, you know, pelvic incidents. We can't, you know, that's, that's set, um, you know, uh, pelvic tilt, that tends to be something more of a Comp compensation type of thing, uh, but lumbar lordosis, you can actually, you know, with the uh, different instruments and hardware that we use uh, during spinal surgery, we can uh, make changes with that. And uh, none of our papers we're going to talk about kind of goes into this, but even, you know, there's, a, there's more research on this because since this came out, a lot of things, you know, it's just kind of blew up from there, but there's also, you know, where do you want your low, low doses at throughout your lumbar spine? You know, certain levels have more low, lower doses than, you know, say L5-1 uh, and 4-5 is going to have a little bit more lower, lower doses than L2-3 uh, or 1-2, you know, so things like that. But definitely gives us something to go for. And um, you have to keep this in mind, not just deformity cases, but also even a degenerative case, you have to remember, okay, you know, you can definitely turn a, a degenerative case into a deformity case later on. If you don't get this uh, specifically, the pelvic incidence and lumbar lordosis mismatch corrected, because uh, they not only do they have a higher rate of, um, you know, uh, just overall disability, they also have a higher rate of uh, like proximal junction kyphosis or adjacent segment disease pretty much is what I'm getting at Right. if, if they have more of this mismatch. So awesome paper and, and a lot of research came out behind it, but this is definitely one anyone who's interested in spine should know. Yeah, I think that uh, that, that was a really important point is that, you know, they, they often, we focus on um, dialing in the lordosis because we don't want to cause these problems when we're doing our, in our degenerative cases. And so um, we, we know that people that have PILL mismatch are disabled on all these subjective scores. So why would we go ahead and cause somebody to have PIL mismatch in an elective surgery we're doing? Like, you know, I think that's an important point, right? Because I'm sure the, the river flows both ways. All right, moving on to the next one. Okay, basically um, we, we have a paper here. It's called the, called the Impact of Positive Sagittal Balance and Adult Spine Deformity. This was a retrospective multicenter perspective Basically, um, what they were measuring is about the, def the defined the positive uh, sagittal balance that um, predict uh, clinical impacts as well as also outcomes. There, this is one. Um, this was written by Glossman all published in two thousand five at Spine, and the study was primarily conducted at the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. So basically, the, to give you a little background here. Basically, what what this paper was attempted to do was basically was trying to um, 
give a, a more specific kind of a, a parameter criteria because previous studies prior to this try and make attempts uh, on, do, on trying to do, but usually they were very broad in the sense of mostly they were based upon very generic, like for example, imaging, positioning of curvature, as well as um, symptoms as well. But what they what they were looking here was basically to, in order to to uh, better understand the these uh, sagittal uh, balances, and uh, later on to describe the differences there. And basically, what they try to do was trying to give a more a more further analyze than just doing just with just in just doing regular um, uh, radiographic trees, uh, judging their gait analysis and even their uh, overall um, uh, health status there. But what they what they want to show is that they want to do um, to see additional what was the outcomes based upon certain measures. And these measures will have a more significance in terms of how they will do the in terms of treatment options later on there. Because as mentioned previously, they try and do it, but it either is, was not very specific or the, the previous study was not, didn't have a good um, sample size in order to run it. So they make an attempt to make a larger, uh, to do the study with a much, a little bit much larger uh, sample size to get, um, to get a good uh, indication for this. And how they go about is basically they evaluate about 752 patients, which 645 are females, 107 males with this condition. And basically the criteria for them includes um, those over 18 with scores more than 30 degrees. Uh, and, and as well as also they have, they have undergone previous surgical treatments of their spine deformity for at least 18 months at the time of, of, of the time this study was conducted. And, and um, one of the things they did was they did what's called a plumb line. If you can see from this image above, you see what it is it was uh, doing what's called plumb lining. Basically what it was is an older technique, which basically you take a rope with a weight behind and you line it with the earlobe right along the temporal line and just going straight down. And the purpose of this was to, to get alignment here. And as mentioned, you may, maybe may not seen this uh, nowadays, but some places in the world, they still use this technique there to give, to see the, the curvature, to see the curvature of balance of the, um, of the spine. In this case here, they were using the C7 uh, vertebra as a main point along, and then that line, that, um, line supposed to hit with the L5 vertebra to see if both of those uh, vertebras hit together, then you know it's a, it's a well-bound uh, sagittal. But, but as mentioned earlier about positives and negatives, the only way you can tell is, is that if the L5 vertebra is more anterior or more rostral in position, that's considered positive. But if in the opposite wise, if it goes more posterior or more dorsal, that would be called negative. And that's how, um, that's how these, um, these um, positions were determined that way. So what they do, in addition, they were determined outcomes based upon um, pain scores and as well as also what's called the ODI, which is a disability index to determine um, the outcomes over time here. So in the results, they said that a total of 352 patients have positive um, sagittal balance were identified here. And in the, overall, they determined based upon that uh, shows that increased pain, we, that increased pain and decreased function were, were, um, were shown as the, the amount, the magnitude of the, of this positive sagittal balance was increasing. 
And um, as such, the health, the outcomes like SF12, SRS29, and the ODI shown very poor scores as, as the deviation from the plumb line increases. So, and then kyphosis in this region were shown more of a disability than patients with normal or low direct um, sagittal uh, cob measures. Basically, what this was is that they were shown that because the as, as the, these uh, patients who, who were more on kyphotic in nature, should they were in worse uh, outcomes than compared to those with even normal or even lordotic positioning there. So in the, we'll show you the next time here, basically just a, a illustration of the data that was showing. And figure two you see here is basically showing the, uh, basically the overall outcomes of it. As you can see, as the increases, basically what it's telling us is that as the, the the magnitude of the balance increases both the the outcomes the overall uh, health measure and also the disability index increases and the same goes with disability here in figure four when you look here you will notice that um, the 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 uh, disability for particularly was much was increasing for for the uh, kyphosis than it was in for low doses and the same goes for the mean SRS there. And then when it measures pain, as I mentioned, is that kyphotic positions were shown much greater than, than those in, in both a normal low doses. So basically, it, it, it begs the, um, shows you that, that um, this was a, um, a very good study in itself there. But um, one thing I want to point out there, as mentioned by the author, saying that uh, as much as this was, uh, they did a large study from it, they still had in, in, uh, still insignificant analysis contributing to it because it was very poorly tolerant, but uh, needless to say that, um, needless to say, I will not uh, rule out this, this um, study from consideration because this is, has shown, has, it was a great lay the foundations for further, um, for further, um, further research as well as also to show that, um, that certain, that um, certain systematic studies can be determined to improve um, outcomes, particularly with pain, uh, overall health, and even uh, minimizing the chance of being disability, especially post-surgical. And so therefore, that's why um, having good, and I'm noting here that it's very vital to have good uh, radiographic and clinical outcomes to, to um, that ensure there'll be more effective uh, treatment paradigms for pa with patients with adult deformities in the near future. Yeah, I mean... Just, uh, just another paper that's just highlighting how important uh, we think sagittal imbalance is when it comes to just overall outcomes in these patients with adult, uh, you know, deformities. So uh, once again, you know, they highlighted SVA, but you also see that, okay, lumbar lordosis is still coming, showing that it's pretty important. And, and when you think about it, as you correct lumbar lordosis, usually you can kind of get them back. So if they're really pushed forward, that's like a positive SVA, probably over 50 millimeters or something like that. You know, as you fix lumbar lordosis, they tend to, as you're jacking them up, they're, they're kind of going back a little bit. So they're getting a little bit closer towards neutral or a little bit closer towards the norm. So it, it just kind of keeps coming back up. Um, and like I say, we, none of our pay is actually going to it a lot, but along with just overall outcome, uh, disability and overall outcomes, like I say, the more uh, mismatch you have with these sagittal uh, parameters, the 
the more likely that you're going to have start having failure, such as adjacent segment disease, which is uh, tends to be an issue with these types of surgeries. Uh, anytime you're putting in uh, rods and hardware in the spine, a lot of times the adjacent level, usually either above or below, start to uh, increase in kyphosis. And then you pretty much later on, you have to go back. If it continues and they become symptomatic, you have to go and extend the fusion even higher. So something to keep in mind, and it can uh, cause a lot of issues for the patient, uh, the patient down the line. But long as you keep these, uh, like I say, these parameters in mind with your cases, both degenerative trauma uh, and deformity, you know, giving the patient the best chance. Yeah, definitely. And especially with these long, these long fusion constructs. So I think that, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, people, at least maybe junior residents and medical students, you know, think about it, when you're fusing the spine, you're essentially turning it into a, a long bone. And so like, uh, we, you know, we talk about it with like ankylosing disease and, and dish, but when you're, when you're creating a, a fusion from T10 to the pelvis, um, you're basically turning that all into one big fulcrum. And so, you know, all of that motion is then going into to one disc above um, and, and so on and so forth. And you can say the same thing for different fusion levels, but um, that just emphasizes Jay's point into, into why we get um, adjacent segment disease and, and uh, PJK. All right, so moving on to the next one. This is a study titled uh, Neurologic Outcomes of Complex Adult Spinal Deformity. I think that uh, it's an important word in the title is complex. Um, so this is a prospective multi-center international, um, what they call observational cohort study. Um, involving motor neurologic outcomes. Uh, so that was their primary outcome of interest in patients who underwent complex adult spinal deformity surgery. Um, this is by Dr. Lanky, published in 2016 in the Spine Journal um, out of Columbia University of New York. Um, and like I mentioned, the goal of the study was to report uh, lower, lower extremity motor function before and after surgical correction um, of complex adult spinal deformity and evaluate changes in lower extremity motor function over time. So background, um, you know, there's a lot of data out there, retrospective data, um, you know, small sample size that indicates uh, a large variety of neurologic uh, deficits in terms of rates of neurologic deficit after spinal reconstruction um, in patients with severe adult spinal deformity. Um, so that's what prompted these authors to, to come up with a study. Um, and their goals were to create a well-protocolized study um, of, of high quality surgeons and, and you know, high quality patient care uh, in order to accomplish this. And so, um, you know, the, they were interested in doing that um, and involved basically 15 spinal centers um, that were selected. Apparently over a hundred places applied to be a part of the study and they were very meticulous in selecting who they picked. Um, and, and they defined their complex adult spinal deformity as a major cob angle greater than 80 degrees, either coronally or sagittally. Um, somebody who had to undergo corrective osteotomies for congenital deformity, uh, for revision of prior spinal deformity surgery, anyone who underwent a three-column osteotomy, um, anybody who underwent a reconstruction for myelopathy due to deformity uh, or any de deformity reconstruction with, uh, that also had decompression for ossified uh, ligament and flavum or OPLL. Um, so there's 43 surgeons involved and 274 patients, they lost one because they didn't have any um, outcome measures for them. Uh, everybody got the same protocol, preoperative, upright, um, you know, coronal and sagittal x-rays. And uh, all the outcomes were collected at six uh, immediately after surgery, prior to discharge, at six weeks and at six months postoperatively. Um, so, you know, they they calculated a bunch of uh, you know health-related quality of life measures, ODI, and 
so on and so forth. But their primary outcome was um, the you know lower extremity motor function. So the way they 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 quantified lower extremity motor function was with the Asia uh, neurologic exam, which is performed by a standardized certified examiner. Um, you know, at the same you know date of discharge, six weeks and six month follow up. So the way they did this was every motor group gets you know a score of zero to five. You know, we learn it in medical school. Um, you know what those different things mean. Um, and each, each one of those goes to five key lower extremity muscle groups for L2, 3, 4, 5, S1. And then that's done for each leg. So you come up with a total of five times five is 25 times two legs is 50. So there's a, a score of 50 that you can get for your lower extremity motor function. And that's how they quantified it. Um, so what does all this mean? So they, they broke down their patients. Um, so everybody underwent surgery in this group, right? They broke down the patients who who had a normal lower extremity motor function um, and they called them the pre-op normal group. Um, and that was a majority of people. 75% had a 50 out of 50 pre-operative motor exam. 68, 68 patients, 25% had an abnormal pre-operative motor exam and their lower extremity motor function was less than 50. So if you look on the right, you can see the chart. Um, I think this is an important point also is that, you know, it's less than 50, but they were like 48, 49, you know, they're at, it, it's, it's, uh, Statistically significant, but is it clinically significant? So just something to keep in mind. Um, what they showed was that, you know, everybody basically out of all comers in both groups at hospital discharge after surgery, 22.1 patients or 22.2 patients had a decline in their lower extremity motor score. Um, so that's, that's pretty huge. Um, you know, a fifth of these patients are leaving the hospital with a worse motor exam than they started with. Um, it was important to note, you know, that this did decline at six weeks, it was down to 17%. At six months, it was down to 10%. Um, and then when you break it down into groups at six months, in the preoperative normal group, those who had a normal exam, 12% of them had a decline in their exam. And however, in those who were abnormal, 83% of them had improvement. So people that were, you know, not in a, had a poor motor exam to begin with, a lot of them did improve. But those who had a normal motor exam uh, to begin with, one in 10 of them had a persistent decline at six months. So pretty interesting results. What these authors did was then continue to follow up their patients. Uh, they, they published another study um, at two years. Uh, they published this in JBJS in 2018, called this their two-year follow-up to the Scoli Risk One. Um, basically what they concluded, this is just a brief um, you know, one-line summary essentially, was at their two-year follow-up, when they calculated the lower extremity motor scores, 10% of all, all comers had a lower extremity motor score declined at two years from follow-up. So the preoperative normal patients, 9% of them were, were disabled, um, or sorry, declined, and 13% of the preoperative abnormal patients were declined. Um, you know, of note, like I mentioned, of the preoperative abnormal patients or those with abnormal motor exams before surgery, 87% of them had improvements. So those with you know, bad exam still continuing to do good uh, at two years, but at all comers, 10% of people still having a neurologic decline. Um, so they recently came up with uh, their five-year results, published it in, in 2021 in the European Spine Journal. Um, only 77 patients of their original 273 were available for five-year follow-up. And what they did was just break down those 77 and calculate all of their disabled, disab uh, lower extremity um, declines, you know, throughout the whole study. So 14.3% at hospital discharge of the 77 had a decline. This went down to 10% at six weeks, six 
percent at six months and then back around 10 percent at two and five years so this is a consistent number that we're seeing i think the 10 percent is a good number um you know we saw it in the two-year follow-up we're seeing it in the five-year follow-up um and, and that's about what you know what these authors concluded um for all comers undergoing adult complex adult spinal deformity surgery um you can expect a, you know 10 percent of them to have uh some sort of lower extremity motor decline um you know though you know that though they do point that out it is important to note that in those patients who had lower lower extremity motor scores to begin with a lot of them experienced restoration of their neurologic function um you know so your patient selection is important i think and, and that's a lot of the stuff that i hear when um you know some of our staff are, are talking about adult spinal deformity surgery is uh is what the patient's exam is what their symptoms are um if they're having neurologic uh compromise from their deformity so i think that that's uh, something that I personally took from this paper. Um, and, you know, and additionally, the authors really wanted to point out that due to how protocolized this was, um, you know, they had a certified Asia examiner, had great follow-up, um, you know, they selected their surgeons or surgery centers well, um, and that this should be the expected, you know, rate that they think that at least, a, um, you know, complex deformity surgery, um, that, that this should be an expected outcomes. And that was what one of their conclusions was. So. Yeah, I think this paper is pretty interesting. I think it's probably mostly good for both the surgeon to know what to expect and even better for you to counsel your patient on what to expect. You know, you know, this is where you, you know, right after surgery, like when you go home, you, you may experience some weakness, you know, maybe before you, you wasn't having weakness before you, you know, discharge, you might have some, but at six months, I expect for you to be at this point, and at two years, I expect for you to be here, and five years, I expect for you to be here. Um, but even with that, I think that's great because I mean, you got to have that conversation with the patient. But also, like we mentioned at the beginning, I think, um, yeah, I think Jose mentioned it at the beginning. I mean, usually the number one complaint is not that they're having weakness, though they may have some. What they're actually complaining about is back pain. Um, so I think it would have been interesting if they would have included some kind of pain score along with like correlated the pain scores as well, because, okay, I know that at six months only, you know, there was a 10% who had some kind of, you know, neurological uh, functioning issue there compared to preoperatively, but were they out of pain? You know, if you ask them, they might say this surgery was everything, you know, even though when you, when you read that, you're like, okay, so that's not a good outcome. But if you ask the patient, they might say, actually, I feel great. I haven't been able to, you know, I haven't felt this good since, you know, in five years, you know, I feel awesome. So I think everything is actually, actually awesome. So, uh, that was the only thing I thought about the paper. I thought if they would have had some kind of way to add in the pain, uh, scale, some kind of pain scale with it as well. I thought that would have been uh, something, you know, of, of value for it as well. Definitely. And yeah, I think that, you know, it's also interesting that that were at least their primary outcomes and, and what they're concluding is all based off of their statistical significance of these lower extremity motor changes. But really, the score, I mean, I didn't see any scores, mean scores below 45. So I mean, like, yeah. They were like 46s, 47s, 48s, like a lot of them were 48s, 49s, and they were calling it statistically significant. So, I mean, I don't know what the MCID is or the minimal, minimally clinically important difference for this LEMS is, but I, I would find it hard to imagine that variations in, you know, 
less than one are, are clinically relevant. So I that's think a, that's, that's a that's a that's a really good point because I mean the Asia score when you look at it, you know, we we've all probably done it. You know, it's the scale one through five or really zero through five. Um, but you know, five might be normal, you know, full strength, and I mean, but four is still. You know, they have they, they still have some uh, strength against resistance, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just, just weaker than the contralateral side, right? Exactly. So, I mean, so if that would mark off one and, you know, they did it for different muscles throughout the lower extremity. I mean, yeah, that could be, you know, I think somebody can have all fours and still be doing pretty well. You yeah, know, uh, you know, there's definitely people out there at a certain age, a certain age group. I mean, really, they. They're they're that's where they're at. They're four out of five. You know, they don't have yeah. a spine issue. They haven't had a surgery, but they are four out of five. So that person would have been forty five on this list, on this scale. You know, they would have had like a forty five or something like that. And yeah. um, you know, but that's that's where they are, and they're they're doing well. But I think I think for what they were looking for, I think the paper did. You know, I think the paper did a good job at it. Um, and I, and I guess that's our last one. But you know. Adult uh, deformities, I think it's 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 a it's it's a pretty difficult topic, and just like you were saying before, so um, it is something that if you got, uh, you know, you got five of the top spine surgeons in the country, and you'll probably get five different opinions on things. Even though we get, we we spend a lot of time and a lot of research on these things, but I mean, they're still. Uh, certain 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 issues there's not a full consensus on now some of these spinal uh parameters they there may be a little bit more consensus on that but even even with that it gets tricky um for one say a 50 year old or a 40 year old coming in with with a spinal deformity okay yeah you get them back you probably should get them back as close as you can to what we consider normal spinal parameters to be but that 75 or 80 year old, you know, 80 might be, you know, you probably don't do this on too many 80 year olds. So I'm gonna say like 75, that 75 year old. Well, you know, she, she may, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's somewhat normal and physiologic to lose some lumbar lordosis as you age. Uh, right. You know, that's just kind of part of it. You know, her, that their parameters may not be what you think a 20 year old would be uh, even though that's what we consider normal. There is some give there. And actually, if you get them too, too, you know, close to what we consider normal, sometimes they actually have a higher chance of failure, higher chance again of adjacent segment disease. Uh, so it gets really tricky. Um, and, and not only that, these patients, you know, I know Soham probably seen it quite a few times, but I mean, these patients, they're really frail. These yeah. people, they're not, uh, you know, they've probably been pretty debilitated for at least, you know, a year or two. Yeah, and it's a slow process. It's a slow process. They tend to be not so healthy. And uh, like I say, just debilitated all around. And uh, so getting them, I actually think pre-oping these patients or having some kind of pre-operative type of strategy, almost like what we do for like hip fractures, yeah. uh, you know, or, or total knees or something like that is a benefit because these people tend to be like really frail and just out of it. And it, and you know, they're in a lot of pain. They come in, they're crying in your office and stuff like that, but it's not actually an emergency. So I think, you know, it's, you know, some surgeons I know for sure 
you know, we got to get you to stop smoking. Okay. So that's, we, we got to get you to stop smoking and, or, you know, we're going to get you in a little bit of physical therapy. Okay. Cause I want to work on some of your strength right now. You're just so weak. I don't know how you're going to do with surgery. Cause that's another thing. I mean, you really do have to tell these people too. Uh, these outcomes and man, so much, I actually like this topic, but, um, there, there, these, this particular surgery for adult spinal deformity, they're usually, they're not always home runs. And honestly, I don't think people have the, the best outcomes. And I, I should have brought some, some data here to, to back up my claim, but overall these people, there is not like a, a total hip or something, you know? No way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people do good, but they're like, there's a really high risk that these patients, these patients with who had these long fusions for spinal deformity is going to end up back in the OR within the next two years for something. It's like a it's a really high rate of that. And like I said, I should have had some some data here to back myself up. But the literature actually does support it. They There's a pretty high risk that they will be back in the OR for some reason in the next two years. Um, and you have to have that conversation with the patient like, hey, you know, I can, you know, we can try to get you as good as we can, but you may, there may still be some issues. And not only that, this, this, you know, is your body able to really handle such a large surgery? This surgery might take, you know, I don't know. This surgery might take eight hours, 10 hours. We might have to separate it out in two days. We might have to do a part uh, prone and we might have to do a part while you supine, you know, go anterior and posterior. Um, so like I was saying, so with these frail patients and it's such a big procedure, the outcome sometimes can be somewhat iffy. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a lot, it's a lot to have to talk to, uh, and explain to the patient along with this, like we just showed about the neurological deficits that you may experience early on. Uh, I think it's a lot and it's a lot of conversation you have to have before surgery. And I think a lot of prep work you have to do before surgery and really have to get to know your patient. Your patient need to have to have some kind of trust in you uh, before moving forward. But uh, when it works, it's great. But, you know, yeah, it can go bad real quick. And it's, like you said, like, you know, it can be various things. Somebody's returning to the OR for with these long constructs. And, you, you know, you mentioned a lot of these people are frail smokers nutritionally and not optimized, um, you know, and, and we know all that stuff from our total joints literature leads to, to infection and, and issues with bone healing from, you know, pseudarthrosis and infection and all these different reasons we're going to take these people back. It's important they can understand that, you know, having a huge fusion construct and then having to take all that out, if you get an infection, could put you in a worse place than when you started. So, like, I think it's a, a really important um, for these are tools for us to be armed to talk to our patients and educate them. Absolutely. So. I enjoyed this. And, uh, and there's so much literature out there for this, guys. I mean, literally, you know, I, I might even do a grand rounds on this or something like that. But uh, this is these are just some of the landmark papers. I mean, I probably could uh, shoot off maybe five or six more that is just as just as major and making a, a big difference in practice. But I hope you guys enjoyed it uh, again. Thank you. So hum. thank you, Jose, for you guys putting this together. Uh the the talks have been great and i know the people are loving it so i want to say it on air thank you all for doing such a great job uh, guys thanks for giving us the opportunity man we i've been a big fan of the show since i was a med student and, and now being on the other side of things and, and trying to help educate is, is uh i think it's a blessing so appreciate you thank you for everything there same here and there <laughs> awesome guys um and and thank you all for tuning in I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, tune in to some of our other shows. We're also doing this in sports. We're also doing it in joints. Uh, I think we have a trauma 
So just keep tuning in, guys. We're, we're putting it out there for you, and I hope you all are enjoying the content. Uh, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and as well on YouTube. All right, guys. Take care. Did you know 94% of U.S. healthcare facilities use locum tenants each year and typically pay more for them? This makes working locum tenants a smart financial move for you to help pay off student loan debt faster or make some extra income. It is even a smart career move. Locum tenants can improve your case volumes to help with credentialing. You can find jobs close to home and CompHealth can even help you find your next full-time job too. Explore all jobs now at CompHealth.com.